Thelma gets remembered as this moment in history that's all about voting rights. It's like all the folks in Selma wanted was voting rights. And if they got them, then that was it. But it erases a whole other side of Selma, the place and the people who lived there and the things that they have been fighting for and continued fighting for, um, you know, throughout the, the century and beyond. Hello. I'm Tanya Scott-Williams, host of Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, an Alabama Humanities Alliance podcast. And you just heard from Dr. Carlin Forner, author of the book, Why the Vote Wasn't Enough for Selma. Now legendary events took place in Selma that led to passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But securing the vote wasn't enough to achieve the broader good freedom that Black residents of Selma were fighting for. Tune in as we continue exploring Black Alabamians' long fight to fully engage in the electoral process. This conversation includes project poet Ms. Ashley M. Jones, who you'll hear throughout each episode. Let's join the conversation with Ms. Jones. Thank you so much, Tanya. I'm always happy to be here. Um, and I wanted to start today, um, I know that we're going to be talking about Selma and some of what happened there and how that's impacted us um, throughout history. But I wanted to read a poem about Birmingham um, because the spirit of um, protest and agitating for these rights to vote and really to just to live as black people, um, you know, happened in many places across the nation, specifically Birmingham and Selma um, in Alabama, Montgomery as well. So this poem is actually set during the Children's March, um, which happened in 1963 in Birmingham, and um, it's a series of haiku. And I wrote this piece in an effort to try to give those children whose pictures we see so often um, in history books or in museums, to try to give them a different sort of voice um, instead of what we may see when we see those images. Birmingham Fire and Rescue Haiku, 1963. What about us said we were on fire? What said extinguish quickly, fill up the hose and set the dogs loose? Could they smell our confusion or was it our singing? Were our voices like sirens, a chorus of blood? We were wet black seeds in that raw Birmingham flesh. We germinated. Did the photos show our fingers stretching like roots? Did they show our eyes, how they reached sunward to the hot, bright, silent star that could turn water to steam, seeds to fruit? Did they see themselves become our fertilizer? Thank you. Thank you for that, Ashley. I appreciate that. After lawsuits and demonstrations and court rulings and countless sacrifices, African-Americans eventually secured the vote. And while the tide eventually turned, there were still challenges that were left to overcome. And so helping me to explore that tonight is my guest, Dr. Carlin Forner. Dr. Forner, thank you for, so much for being with me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So tonight we're gonna to shine a spotlight on Selma in the Black Belt of Central Alabama. And for many people, you know, Selma embodies the heart of the bloody contentious fight for African-Americans uh, to gain their voting rights. 
uh, through a series of protests and you know, marches spearheaded by local townspeople and supported by activists and freedom rights organizations, Selma eventually became synonymous with the movement uh, that ultimately ushered in the Voting Rights Act. And as we've heard throughout this series, the work, however, and that's the part I like to go back to over and over again, the work, the organizing and planning happened over generations. Uh, black folks built communities and schools and churches and societies that provided shelter, respite, and relative protection uh, away from the gaze of white elites who were determined to maintain control over black bodies. And in those spaces, challenges to white supremacy were fought strategically and discreetly. And while we often see the 1960s and Selma as a crucial point in the dismantling of laws that disenfranchised African-Americans, there is so much more to her story. And so Dr. Forner, let's start by looking at Selma at the turn of the 20th century. You know, who lived in the region and what were the political and social structures of that time? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's that's a great question. And, uh, you know, that that's one place to start. And of course, the story goes, you know, well back before that too. Um, but at the, the turn of the century in Selma, uh, the majority of the population was African-American. This was coming out uh, a history of slavery in the Black Belt and cotton plantations. Um, and really at, at the turn of the century, as it had been before, cotton dictated all of life in Selma and in the region. Um, everything was tied back to cotton. And so largely you had white plantation owners and then working that land were African-American tenant farmers um, out in the field. Uh, and so that, that was sort of what was happening out in the countryside. And then the city of Selma, which was sort of the economic hub of the Western Black Belt, um, had cotton warehouses, had wholesalers, all of the, the stores and the, the businesses in town all depended on the profit of cotton and everything was structured around cotton, which also is a system in which there's only one payday a year from cotton when the crops come in in the fall. And so largely it was a, a, a system of credit um, that, that dictated the region and that, that folks were, were living within. And of course, within this system of cotton, you know, white supremacy clearly undergirded sort of all of the interactions in town and, and really shaped how residents interacted um, with each other. And so, you know, African-Americans in the Black Belt served as tenant farmers while in town, they were serving as, um, you know, household laborers and they were doing in the industries that were were in the city, uh, African-Americans were in the sort of lowest paid jobs um, while there, all of this effort also supported a, you know, white upper class as well as a white working class in town. So Selma also was a town that had cotton mills, um, and had you know factories and things like this, and so so Selma was sort of the the economic hub of the Western Black Belt, and everything about that was shaped by this system of white supremacy that protected the privileges and the wealth of white people um, and kept African Americans on the bottom of that system. So it it certainly was a thriving economic hub, and and as you said, cotton was the dominant crop, and it fuel pretty much everything that happened in that period. Um, what I'm interested in uh, is really focusing, even though of course there was a there was a, a structure, a social system that was in place that 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 locals followed. Uh, however, there were uh, the beginnings of uh, a growth and economic development 
uh, around uh, some of the black uh, districts there in the city. Can we talk a little bit about the expanding black business districts during this period? Yeah, absolutely. And going, you know, going to your point before about how black people in, you know, in Dallas County, in the Selma area, in the Black Belt, um, you know, within the system, we're finding ways to uh, you know, set up sort of self-sufficiency and relying on their own and building their own economic resources and owning land because all of those things offered independence from the system that was designed to keep them from, you know, having having the things that they needed, you know, be able to provide good education for their children and get good jobs and things like this. And so from the very beginning, you know, from at the turn of the 20th century and beforehand, uh, African-Americans in Selma and the surrounding countryside have been working on building their own institutions. Um, and so, you know, a central, a central part of this in Selma was Selma University, um, which was funded by Black Baptists. And so it was funded with African-American money, which gave a degree of, of independence. And so Selma University is educating the doctors, the undertakers, a whole variety of a, a professional class in Selma. And so these folks were all, you know, there, there are people who continued to live in town, but also folks, you know, graduates from Selma University who spread out over the Black Belt. And so these are teachers and just a whole variety of folks. So Selma University um, is really supporting kind of the growth of this Black middle class and, and Black businesses um, that, you know, Black community members patronized and, and supported. And so that was all going on. And then at the same time, you have Black churches. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite stories um, in my research from Selma is that of Tabernacle Baptist Church, um, who, when they, they went to build the church, which is on a main street in town, they went to get the city, the, the permits that they needed. And uh, it came out that they were planning on building their main entrance to the church on that main road. And the, the city administration said, as a Black church, you can't have that main entrance on this road that, you know, we, we don't want that. And so what they did was that they built two main entrances, both big columns, these grand entrances. And so there's two of them. One is the actual entrance to the church on the side street, but there's a parallel one that's on the main road in town, you know, which I love as like symbolism of like, well, fine, we can't have this main entrance to the church, but we're still going to build the entrance there because we know that we should be able to. So it's the, the resourcefulness and the committedness to sort of to, to taking care of their own and building up the community and supporting neighbors in whatever ways they could. Um, it's so apparent in sort of every decade throughout the whole 20th century, you know, it just, it looks different as the years go on, but it was very clear that even at the turn of the century as you know, the 1901 constitution is being passed and African-Americans are being, you know, deprived of their vote and the vote is being taken from them, that they are turning inward and finding other ways to bolster and support their community. Absolutely. The, the, the thing that's great to remember is, and I remember reading this once, and I can't remember where though, but, you know, Africa, sometimes as we look back over history, we see these moments when we have court rulings and, and other movements that we are very much aware of that were crucial to the, the shift and change in society and, and, and Black folks having access to pretty much everything. Uh, but we sometimes forget that, that uh, you know, formerly enslaved folks, Black people were not waiting to be liberated. They were creating spaces for themselves, creating communities uh, and finding a way to exist 
and to push back against the systems that had been in place for, for generations. Um, and you mentioned uh, Selma University. So this area was a bit of a hub, an educational hub for, for the Black Belt. And there were also federally funded programs, I understand, that were helping to serve the Black population. Mm-hmm. And that came a little bit later on, um, really so there's sort of this narrative about how the bull weevil, when the bull weevil came to the Alabama Black Belt, that that was the end of cotton. And it didn't really it didn't really work quite like that. But what the bull weevil did do was sort of incline folks in the Black Belt to look for a way besides cotton. And so then that brings in the Extension Service, the Agricultural Extension Service, which is really central in Dallas County because Dallas County is such a rural county and uh, so dependent on agriculture. And so the Extension Service came in with county agents for sort of the -the on-the-ground folks who were helping teach Farmers and also, you know, plantation owners. This is both white and black, but you know, white originally. But uh, you know, supporting white landowners to adopt scientific agricultural methods. So planting things like cover crops and rotating crops. You know, things that might not not seem that like interesting and central necessarily, but are really are really key to how life plays out in the Alabama Black Belt. And so. When the bull wheel came sort of in the, the 19 teens and into the 1920s, Dallas County starts paying more attention to this idea of scientific agricultural and agriculture and you know crop management and things like that. And what they what white people in Dallas County quickly discover is that black people tend the fields. Like black people are the folks who are growing all of the crops and doing the farming and the tenant farming. And so that these scientific agriculture ideas can't go anywhere if you're not bringing African-Americans along in this. And so along with this, they bring in Black county agents to work with Black farmers. And so there's limits to this because tenant farmers don't have very much control over what they can and can't grow. Much of it depends on the credit that they receive from white plantation owners and and the commissary stores and things like this. Um, But independent Black landowners, which there is a contingent of independent Black landowners, really sort of adopt the extension service methods. And, you know, all of these things work together in that the extension service is promoting, you know, growing crops more efficiently and tending to the land and and growing livestock and raising livestock in a way that can bring in more profits for these families. And so, you know, there's that aspect of it, but there's also the aspect of it that this is helping people be more self-sufficient. It's helping more people uh, own land and sort of build up their resources. The extension service becomes really important sort of starting in the 1920s, but then becomes really, really central in sort of the New Deal in the 1930s and the 1940s. And the folks who go on to really lead the local voting rights struggle sort of before the national civil rights organizations come in are the county extension agents. So the S.W. Boynton and Amelia Boynton are are the extension agents who are working with these Black landowners around sort of agriculture um, but also around voting rights and around independence. So all of these things are working together. And these are supported by the, the federal government is supporting these programs, which also gives the extension agents some freedom as they're moving around the county because they're not relying on local money for that. So we have all of these 
these, uh, this, this movement, these points that come together that at some point lead us to where we will ultimately arrive to in the 1960s. And I feel like I'm, as we're moving along through that century, it's, 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 it's important to remember that we still have, as you said, these, these strict racial codes, uh, the 1901 constitution, all of those things, all of those efforts that are still in place uh, that is, that's designed to keep the population segregated. Uh, and then at some point we have the war, uh, world wars that happened and that really began to expose more broadly uh, the unequal conditions that were apparent. Uh, mm-hmm. And it also ex- strengthened the resolve of you know, Blacks returning from the war to secure their freedoms you know, at home. And as you said, we have these extension agents who are moving more freely through the communities. They're bringing information. They also become a pathway into communities to bring uh, conversations about uh, movements that will eventually lead to uh, some of these major changes that we're going to see later on. Can, can you describe how uh, the war factored into establishing rights for Black citizens? Yeah, and there's there's so many there's so many levels to that. There's both you know the local level and then what's going on at the national level. Um, and and World War II wasn't the first time that this conversation came to the table. But for African Americans, participation in World War II, fighting a war for democracy, it wasn't lost on them how you know, them, their participation in a war for democracy, how they didn't have those rights back home. And all of a sudden they were, they were being asked to enlist and go abroad and potentially give their lives uh, for this effort. And so by, you know, Black participation in World War II was equally about securing those rights at home. Um, And this was really, this was really clear in Dallas County, um, and that the you know black support for the war effort was huge, and also going back to the extension agents, S. W. Boynton and C. J. Adams, who are you know two people in Selma who are really pushing to register black people to vote, um, are you know and and C. and S. W. Boynton is also the extension agent, so is working with communities. Um, and you know, helping produce food for the war, you know, helping communities grow grow food and and send that to troops, et cetera. So they're working on that front, but they're also raising money for war bonds. I mean, they are actually like the black faces in Selma who are out there drumming up support for the war efforts. And the white community, you know, enlists them in this too. And so they know full well as they're doing this how their participation in the war effort is equally about making an argument for why African-Americans, you know, deserve the right to vote, have the right to vote, are entitled to the right to vote um, in the Alabama Black Belt. So these two, you know, these two things come together. Um, And on a national stage, uh, the, the war puts sort of front and center um, you know, discussions about civil rights and extending the the vote to African Americans and and you know around there's a civil rights plank um, in that that comes into the Democratic Party in 1948. So the the war sort of shifts the conversation um, both on like the national conversation that's happening, but also sort of on the local level how folks how Black people see their participation in the war effort as being a way to to help secure or move move the dial forward on them having full voting rights as well. These things will eventually lead to where we're going to go to after this uh, 
a shift in the conversation for us. I want to bring Ashley back on with us and Dr. Forner after she uh, gives us this next poetry selection. We're going to, you know, speed along in the century and, and really begin to look at what is most familiar to most folks about where Selma was at that time and, 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 and how the vote may or may not have secured the future that uh, a lot of folks have been hoping for. Um, Ashley, are you with us? I am here. And um, actually, as y'all were talking about um, Selma at the turn of the century, something kind of uh, sparked for me when you talked about cotton, how cotton was the machine behind everything. Um, and that structure, that societal structure where Black people were doing all of this labor to support still um, the white supremacist um, you know, society. And so I thought about my own grandmother who um, lived in Greensboro, Alabama, which is not too far from Selma. And she was someone who picked cotton. She was a sharecropper. Um, and uh, this, this poem that I'm going to read takes us forward in time to echo what Tanya was just saying um, to just a few years ago, actually, um, something that happened to me that made me think about my grandmother. And there's a certain reaction that I have when I see cotton. Um, it brings all of those things you mentioned, Dr. Forner, into my mind, um, just the way that Black people um, have done so much burdensome work um, for a system that continually tries to rob us of our life. And so this poem is one that I wrote, like I said, a few years ago, um, upon seeing some cotton for sale at Whole Foods um, as if it were a bouquet of flowers. And all I could think was, what about my grandmother? <laughs> you know, this is ridiculous. She wasn't paid $9.95 for three little dirty bowls of cotton, you know, and the struggle that our people have faced is all I could imagine in my mind. Um, and so I wrote this poem instead of doing what I wanted to do, which was rip the whole display down and, you know, burn everything to the ground. I wrote the poem instead. It's called Broken Sonnet for the Decorative Cotton for Sale at Whole Foods. Who knew? All you had to do was wrap three stems of dirty cotton in cellophane, call it a bouquet, and sell it on the white side of town to make a decent living. Grandmother, instead of picking clean each spiny mouth, why didn't you weave the woodsy stalks into a wreath, the perfect autumnal decor in suburban Alabama? Instead of sharecropper, factory worker, cleaner of white house, why not start an Etsy shop? Make little cotton ribbons to adorn blonde curls, string your daughter's baby teeth on a thin gold rope, and call them pearls. Ashley, thank you. Dr. Forner, I wanna bring you back on with us. So Selma has a rich and complex history and, and by the middle of the century, it, it has assumed an essential role in, in the civil rights movement. Uh, it is, however, that celebration that we're all familiar with around that movement that, that often obscures the ongoing challenges the people of Selma faced while the movement was underway and even still today. Can you highlight the differences between the movement that we are very much aware of and the place that is Selma? Yeah, that's thank you for that question. Cause that is, it's a central, it's a central part. Like Selma gets remembered as this moment in history that's all about voting rights. It's like all the folks in Selma wanted was voting rights. And if they got them, then that was it. But it erases a whole other side of Selma, the place and the people who lived there and the things that they have been fighting for and continued fighting for 
um, you know, throughout the, the century and beyond. And a central part that's missing from that story about voting rights and the story of the movement is the economic side of this struggle that had been there from the beginning and that Black people in Dallas County and the Black Belt were so resourceful in working towards self-sufficiency, towards education, towards independent land ownership, towards really controlling what they needed to, to make better lives for themselves and their communities. And so we can see this in the extension service work that it was always about the Boyntons were always pushing for Black land ownership because Black land ownership also brought that independence and the economic self-sufficiency. Um, and so what, you know, what goes along with this is that in the middle of the century, there's this change starting with the, the New Deal, how in, instead of cotton being the dominant structure of life, uh, cattle really took over the cotton field and it became more profitable for the former plantation owners to bring cattle into the field and cattle didn't require black tenant farmers in the same way. And so now there are black people who used to work the land who some leave and move other places in the country, but some stay. And so the, the white city leaders start looking for industry to come into town. You know, they're, they're really promoting industrialization, but those industries are supposed to follow the same pattern as tenant farming so that black people, that the goal is that these should not be unionized jobs. They should not be jobs that pay especially well. It's about maintaining the same social structure. And so this is kind of happening at the same time that the voting rights movement is really taking off. And so for African-Americans in town, the, the system, you know, a system that didn't provide them much of a living is sort of replaced with like a new updated, you know, industrialized system that, that does the same thing. And so, you know, parallel to the struggle for voting rights was African-Americans organizing around, you know, unionization, acquiring better jobs, um, acquiring, you know, representation in the city, like in city offices to not just not not just to be in those positions, but to to make material improvements to the city, you know, to pave streets, um, to to have good sewers, and you know things like that that people really rely on, and to you know create better schools. And so that that piece of the story, and this this looks very different in sort of every decade of the century, but constantly, black people in Selma and Dallas County and the Black Belt are also fighting for economic security. And the movement is a story that ends up being all about voting rights, but it doesn't end up asking, what are those voting rights for? Now that we have the vote, what can African-Americans do to materially improve their lives? And that was always the end goal. The vote was always for something else, not in and of itself. And so the story of Selma the Moment leaves out that fight from you know black residents that was happening well before and just and continued after and continues now you know it doesn't it doesn't stop at this point so the vote is just one piece of that without getting at the the bigger picture of this is really about you know safety and security and being able to provide for your family and those basic things so securing the vote as you said it, it was one step one step among many that african americans have been using for a very long time uh, you know, to gain, to gain their political freedom, uh, to, you know, basically to build their families and to finally, you know, experience the American ideal of opportunity and equality. And, and I sometimes think of Selma as being this place that's resilient. Clearly, 
some of the shortcomings of the movement is, as you said, it it uh, it sort of overshadowed the rest of the story, you know. Uh, but I think of Selma as this place that's really resilient, and her legacy as the epicenter of the of the voting rights uh, movement lends to the conversations that we're having today, you know, around what is next, you know, these ongoing efforts to address systemic racism. Uh, so, what lessons can we begin to take from uh, Selma that is empowering the movement that we're experiencing right now? Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a great question. Um, I think that you know one of the through lines in for for Black folks who live in Selma and were at the the front lines of all of these different movements and organizings is really the the resourcefulness. Um, that the the sort of conditions that folks were living in changed over time. But the people were so deliberate about what they needed to do in that moment, what opportunities they could capitalize on and make the most of to bring the most benefits to them and move them closer to this idea of the, you know, the good freedom, sort of the, the freedom that has it all. And right. so it looks really different throughout the whole century, but it, it's constant. It's just a through line that people are always working on organizing together with their community um, and listening to, to their community members and trying to find ways to make the situation better with whatever resources are there in that moment. You know, which also points to, I think, one of the challenges of the struggle, because I think what's really clear from Selma is that while Selma is the center, you know, is like kind of the epicenter of this idea of the voting rights movement, on the flip side, the Alabama Black Belt has been on the losing side of sort of federal investment, that there are places in the South that have have attracted the high paying industries that have attracted sort of federal government investment. And those areas haven't been in the Black Belt. And so it's been really hard for places like Selma to be able to make much progress on some of these things because there, there aren't the funds there that people need to really put into action all of the all of the different pieces that would that would make people's lives better. And so there's also, you know, there's a local story, but there's also there's a structural story about the whole, you know, like how, how the whole federal state local government structure works and where resources go and that's a really important part of the story too that people can be as resourceful as they possibly can be, but you also need resources to really carry out the full vision. And that piece about resources is really important too. So let's talk about the resources that ultimately wound up in Selma. Where did those resources go? Uh, You know, resources generally stayed in the the hands of white political and, and business leaders. You know, after the movement came, there was a very concerted fight on, on the part of white leaders to maintain the status quo and maintain control um, and so you don't see, you know, black elected officials until I think 1972, and you don't see, despite you know being a black majority population, you don't see a black controlled county commission until I think 1988 or 89, and the city councils into the 90s. And so some of these these efforts to you know maintain control and maintain economic power and sort of a, a shrinking it's a shrinking pot of money. There was a, an Air Force base that was outside of town that closed in 1977. So a lot of funds left with that industry leaves. 
Um, and so while resources are shrinking at the, the end of the century, there's also a concerted effort by white political and business leaders to sort of maintain control on that, which you know had its own ramifications too. I wanna start folding in some of the questions from the audience, if that's all right with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so this first question is, uh, Dr. Forner, how did you come to research this topic? Yes, uh, well, I, I was captivated by the Selma movement, you know, the civil rights movement, sort of this idea of the voting rights movement. And that's how I first got to it. I took a bus trip to Selma as a college student, um, a spring break bus trip. And I walked into the National Voting Rights Museum, um, which was a small little museum then located on Water Avenue. And I walked in and there's a wall that has post-it notes on it. And it was called the I Was There Wall. There's mm. folks from who had been, who participated in the movement who just wrote a sentence about what they had done. And it was great. It was, you know, I cooked food for the marchers. I marched with Dr. King. I was there on Bloody Sunday. And then you had some from police officers too, you know, who were saying that that they were on the other side of the bridge during Bloody Sunday. And so there was a real range and I was really captivated by that and the, the local people who were at the heart of the movement because so much of the story of the movement ends up being about Dr. King. But there were all these folks on the ground who really made it happen. And so then that what, what led me to, you know, look at the whole century too, that like those local people were there and are there and were there throughout all of it. And they're the folks who are really fueling this, that it was people on the ground who were working to, you know, better their lives in all of these different ways. So that's what brought me to it. Fantastic. Our next question is, can you tell us about, uh, more about uh, C.J. Adams? Did he live to see the passage of the Voting Rights Act? Hmm. I don't know off of the top of my head when C.J. Adams passed away. I think he did not because he was he fought in World War II. He was a mail clerk um, in Selma, um, really in the 19 teens. And he enlisted and actually, oh, I'm sorry, not World War II. He fought in World War I. Um, so he was in World War I. He was a World War I veteran. He came back to town. He registered to vote. Um, in town and then formed the Dallas County Voters League. Uh, he helped create the, the NAACP in town and was, was really a, a sort of through line and helped when S.W. Boynton, the extension agent, came to town. Um, C.J. Adams sort of took him under his wing uh, and the two of them really worked to, to push forward voting rights and try to register African-Americans to vote in Selma when, that was, when there were very few voters on the roll. Um, but he ended up going, moving back to Detroit. Um, he moved up to Detroit uh, in the 1940s um, because he had, he faced, as you can imagine, uh, he faced much discrimination and targeted harassment um, from white officials for sort of his role in this. And so he, he stayed and then eventually moved up to Detroit with family. So no, I don't think he actually lived to see the, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Now, as I've read through um, your book, uh, there are just so many incredible points uh, that you highlight, uh, just parts that that are not, you know, they don't always make it to the headlines about the history of Selma and seeing it beyond uh, the moment, as you described before. If there is anything in particular that you want the audience to know about this book, this work, this body of work that you've done, uh, what is it that you'd like for them to really be able to take away from this that you put together? Hmm. I think that goes back to the the resourcefulness of local people. Again, I guess there's one really, really fantastic story from the 1930s and the New Deal 
and SW Boynton and Amelia Boynton were on the front lines of trying to get federal money into town to support Black people in town. And so one thing that they did in the 1930s, there wasn't a place for African-Americans to use the bathroom when they came to shop in Selma. And so the Boyntons moved forward on this idea of bringing a community, of building a community center in, in the center of Selma. And they met resistance from city leaders and they enlisted a white ally uh, from the Episcopal Church, the reverend at the Episcopal Church, to sort of front the project for them because they they wanted to do whatever they could to make this happen. And they raised money amongst the extension service, uh, you know, the, the people who were in the extension service. And they they kept after this year after year after year. And it took it took four years for them to eventually get this through. But the first sort of public works money that comes to Selma is because the Boyntons are pushing for it, you know, and the white leaders in town go out and also get public works money at, at some point and, you know, build projects in town as well. But it's really, you know, on the front lines of that are the Boyntons trying to figure out how to make things better for the Black people who live in Dallas County. Um, and I think that that story is, is really an example of how they were looking for every opportunity that was there, that there is, you know, even though the circumstances change, Black people are always looking for how to make their lives better and acting on that and organizing together. So I think that would be probably the main takeaway. We have another question from the audience, and this one is, what role did educators play before, during, and post-Voting Rights March? Educators were were always central. Black educators were always central, you know, in different roles. Um, you know, one of the the through lines, there are so many stories of folks who were educated in both the public schools and kind of the, the private, black private schools in town about how how their teachers taught them that they were full citizens and what was involved in full citizenship and how to participate and what democracy was, and that this was sort of a through line throughout their education. So there's there's that aspect of it. Um, there's also, you know, in the movement, uh, Selma is is known for the teachers' march that happens um, early on the at the beginning of the movement in 1965, uh, where teachers in the public schools march to the courthouse to register to vote. And these are teachers who are being paid by the local government, you know, who are not independent but are still out there on the front lines. Um, so you have have that, and you know how how teachers educated students sort of changed throughout the years, but there's still this through line of, you know, despite segregation, despite, you know, separate, separate but equal, um, which didn't look equal at all, uh, you know, black teachers are still teaching their students that they're worth it and that they they can stand up and they can act. I mean, the students in Selma in 1963 when SNCC come to town, the students are the folks who are leading the movements. And so their teachers, you know, their teachers walked a fine line um, in terms of supporting them. Like the teachers knew that they couldn't necessarily be out there, but they gave the students, you know, full support as the students are out doing this and the students led the way. So they were empowered by these folks who were, you know, supporting them in a number of ways. Can you tell us, um, uh, Dr. Forner, as you look at where Selma is today and uh, along the, the line of, why the vote wasn't enough. If you look at organizations today that might be coming alongside um, sort of in the, the shadow of that movement, helping Selma and helping the, uh, this area of, of the Black Belt to 
you know, frame the policies that are needed to finally achieve the economic, political, and social justice for its citizens? Do you see organizations that, that are cropping up uh, or that already already existed that are doing that work? Well, I think that there's been a lot of organizing that has happened around the National Votes right, Voting Rights Museum and Institute and a number of, of different organizations connected to that um, that have been, been doing good work for a long time right now. And there are a lot of organizations that are you know, also organizing around this. But you know, in this, this current movement too, or in this current moment, um, with the uprisings of last summer, the organizations and the movement for Black Lives, which are you know not like specifically in the Black Belt, but like yes, in the Black Belt and elsewhere across the country, you know these conversations have come front and center in a way that they haven't been like that narrative, the the triumphal narrative of the civil rights movement that like the civil rights movement happened. And then African-Americans had the right to vote and we were all equal. And, you know, that sort of triumphal narrative, not to downplay the, the successes of the civil rights movement. But the last year has has shown light on that story, you know, in, you know, the, the sort of myth behind that story in a way that I don't think has been so transparent. So the arguments and the, the initiatives being put forth by you know, organizations in the movement for black lives, both in Alabama and throughout the whole country are really putting the, the struggles for you know, economic rights and the, the good freedom, you know, the, the broader sense. The, those are front and center in a way now where it's the, the recognition that voting rights aren't enough, they're necessary. Right. And we know that like this moment shows us very much that voting rights are necessary, but that there's so much more beyond that, too. So we have another question here. This one is, what does full citizenship look like today in Selma or or anywhere? uh, uh, Is is the vote ever enough? Well, what does full citizenship look like is a huge question that I think depends very much on individuals. Um, you know, there's an individual answer to that and there's a larger, you know, broader structural answer to that. Um, and that I think full citizenship involves, you know, quality education, good jobs that allow people to provide for their families, um, political, political rights and representation in a way that people feel like their voice matters and that they're able to participate, you know, small d democracy on this uh, good health care, you know, things that that allow families to feel safe. I think all of these things are part of full citizenship. And then, of course, there's so much more, you know, there's an individual definition to that. And I think the answer is no. The The vote is never enough. It's always the start. You need the vote. But the vote is about what that allows you to do, how that allows you to take care of yourself and your family and your community and the structures that that puts in place. Um, So I I think of uh, Cortland Cox from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who constantly says that the vote is necessary but not sufficient. And I, I think that's very, very true. So we understand that the vote is just one part of uh, this effort to gain, you know, access to all of the ideals that that America holds. Uh, however, we are now looking today at uh, politicians, officials who are writing laws and getting them in place that are really, you know, eroding a lot of the advances that we uh, had uh, enjoyed over these last few years. Speak to some of the things that you're noting today that might look a whole lot like what we just came through uh, in this last uh, century 
in uh, American politics and how it affects uh, the rights of, of African-Americans in particular. Yeah, well, I think I, I think that this moment, the parallels between this moment and the, the passage of the 1901 constitution in Alabama and the other constitutions that Southern states were passing, you know, in the 1890s and at the turn of the century that were intentionally about removing black voters from the voting rolls. And so the language that we are using now is different than the language in 1901, but the parallels between these two moments are, are astounding. I mean, I'm blown away by it as a historian who is not necessarily so shocked by some of these things anymore. Like in some ways I've come to expect some of these, but, but just how, how what is happening right now and the sort of bills being advanced all across the country so closely parallel what is going on in Alabama in 1901 and the quotes that I included in my book from 1901. You know, I, I can find those parallel quotes so easily right now. And to just, to see it again, it's, it's shocking to me, even as someone who studies this history. So what does this mean for us at this point in history? If we are experiencing now a lot of the same tactics that were deployed at the turn of the century to remove uh, black folks from the voter rolls to prevent them from voting in the first place. What does this mean for us as we're going forward? <laughs> that the struggle continues, I think. Um, I, you know, this idea, I, I think that there's, there's certainly an American idea of progress and that, you know, things are always getting better. And yes, there are certainly triumphs and successes and achievements along the way. But for every time that that, you know, in terms of like of, of sort of rights for African-Americans, you know, for for, you know, people across not just African-Americans, but, you know, a whole bunch of folks in the country, every time that there's there's movement, there's also counter movement. And I think right. you can really see that in in Selma to how every gain has a very deliberate counter. And sometimes that counter is really powerful and erodes some of those gains in kind of unexpected ways. And so ultimately, I, yeah, I ultimately think that the, the takeaway is that the struggle continues. Like this is, this is where we are right now and you know, we'll move in one direction or another and then there'll be something, something next. You know, it's not a sprint, it's ultimately a marathon and it just keeps going. So we have one more question. Does this all make voting more important than ever? Yes. But then on the other hand, voting is always that important all the time. It's just especially noticeable how important it is right now. But yes, voting is, is underneath all of everything else. You know, you need, you need the vote and people need to be able to access that and participate in their government in order to be able to, to set up structures that bring all of these other, other pieces of full citizenship and the good freedom. So we've, this, this topic with Selma, there's no way that we could really get into all of it within this hour. Um, I'm going to invite Ashley to come back on and share with us. And afterwards, uh, Dr. Forner, I just wanna give you the floor for any closing thoughts. The, you know, the, the underlying message that, that we're, I think, presenting tonight is, as you've said throughout our conversation, that the vote was, was never enough and it was never the end game. It was a part of a much bigger uh, plan to see uh, you know, African-Americans have access and to be able to appreciate the things that so many of her other citizens had been enjoying 
for a very long time. So after Ashley comes on and gives us her final piece for tonight, I want to give you closing thoughts on that and maybe to expound on that just a little bit more before we close out. I've been really interested in this conversation about if the vote is enough and what exactly um, our end goal actually is. And for me, as a Black person in America, the end goal is to be able to live um, peacefully and freely and literally just be able to breathe down my street and not be um, attacked for it. And that does go to the vote because we try to use that to remove some of these people who um, are really upholding these systems. Um, and so I wanted to um, read a piece that I wrote in 2017 um, after one of the most important votes perhaps in our recent history um, and what a lot of people saw as a great failure of the vote um, because it was used to elect that person who we don't have to talk about anymore. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I, I wrote this piece out of a deep frustration um, with, you know, doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, like voting, like, you know, staying on top of my local government and all of this. And it all doesn't seem to, sometimes it doesn't seem to matter at all. It's like, even all of those things aren't, still aren't quite getting at the, the issue. Um, so, this is called Who Will Survive in America or 2017, a horror film. All year, I have worked against this feeling, this country, this raging wreck from sea to shining sea. Do you know what it means to wake each morning to realize your own brown hands aren't enough to protect you? that the likelihood of any given day being your last one on earth is too high, that we are more likely to find life on Mars than to ever actually fix that fatal likelihood, that we'll probably just continue with our meaningless Starbucks orders, fill the house with Nina Simone and call that woke, value furry collared creatures over our own human kin. Sometimes, seems like they can smell our otherness, Seems like we sparkle with something fiery in the sunlight, but not even our spectacular crystalline glitter makes it easier for them to believe that we have any inalienable right to breathe. Mm, beautiful. Mm. Thank you for that, Ashley. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Forner, we have about uh, two or three minutes, and I want to uh, give you a, a moment to just help us to look back over this conversation and really grasp the uh, importance of where Selma is, certainly not to uh, in any way uh, forget about all of the sacrifices that we associate with this place in the Black Belt region, but to really look at what it means in terms of uh, its place going forward and the promise that it never quite seemed to, uh, that was never quite fulfilled with all of these sacrifices. Can you give some closing thoughts around that? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that Selma is an important reminder to all of us, and you know, far more than that. Um, but that these places that get held up in this triumphal story, triumphal story of American democracy and what it means to be a citizen, when you go back and look at these places and really see how people are living there and what you know, if that triumphal story matches 
what it looks like on the ground and the lives of folks who are there. I think it's an important reminder that we can't get too caught up in this American narrative of progress and that, you know, more rights. And it's, it's important to remember that there is there is always more work to be done and it is not work that is easy. And it's not that the path is not always clear either. I think that one of the lessons that I take away from Selma is the resourcefulness of people there and how how Black people in Selma and Dallas County organized and organized and organized and organized and organized against insurmountable odds. And the things that they managed to accomplish in different times throughout the century and beyond, that that they managed to, to move the dial on things that really seemed immovable. And I think that's an important, because in this, you know, in the moment that we're in, it's also easy to, to lose hope in some of this and to see that the problems are just so big. And I think that that the story of Selma is also about people just continuing to organize and working to make their lives better and make structures respond, you know, to their needs. And but in whatever way was the way at that moment. And so I think that that's an important moment for now too. You know, recognizing the gap between the triumphal story and and all the work that needs to be done, but recognizing that when folks come together and organize and work towards something, really amazing things can happen and that ordinary people are really powerful. And I think that that we can never lose sight of that piece of it, but that's true throughout all of this. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Forner. Thank you for being here with me tonight and for writing this book. I also want to uh, thank Ashley Jones for bringing her poetry to us tonight. She does an amazing job through each of these episodes. I just really uplifts the theme of the show. And this is a a team effort. This entire series uh, has certainly had many hands to make this work happen. And among the many people who make it possible, uh, there are two who are behind the scenes with us during each of these live broadcasts, uh, managing the details. And that's Gerald Crook and Laura Anderson. And I just wanna let them know that it's been a pleasure and it is a pleasure to work alongside them. Uh, Again, Dr. Forner, I hope that we'll have another conversation at some point in the future uh, on this topic. And uh, again, I want to thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, presented by the Alabama Humanities Alliance and funded by the Why It Matters Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm your host, Tanya Scott-Williams. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Alabama Humanities Alliance, go to alabamahumanities.org.